0: Well, thank you, Katrina, um, for your kind introduction. Now, I would actually like to start off my paper with uh, this image here, which is a large sheet of caricatures, and most of these caricatures were taken from Punch, printed in the early 1880s, because I think it pretty much encapsulates the celebrity status held by the Israeli in the popular imagination during his lifetime and beyond... Now, um, it is captioned with this line from Shakespeare's As You Like It, and uh, unfortunately, it's a very small print, but also the resolution is not very good, but it says here, one man in his time plays many parts, and... Um, as i said i think this is what the israeli celebrity status basically comes down to and so this collage points towards the many layers of the israeli's uh, celebrity status of his fame of the public preeminence during his lifetime and Beyond, and uh, this very much resulted from a rather curious mingling of his multiple public personae and his roles. Um, most of these cartoons actually refer to episodes in his long and eventful political career. So, uh, for example, here in the centre, and uh, I'm not sure whether. Uh, no, there's no pointer here, um, but so for example this one here in the centre refers to the 1867 Reform Act, then on the left hand side we've got a few referring to the Eastern Question and uh, the uh, Congress of Berlin, or uh, down here in the left hand corner we've got Disraeli really being created Earl of Beaconsfield by Queen Victoria in 1876. Uh, but pretty much all of them reflect a preoccupation with Israeli as uh, an inscrutable enigma uh, with uh, someone who is essentially untouchable and unknowable. And this is particularly obvious in the recurring visual motif of Disraeli as uh, an impassive and an impenetrable sphinx. Now, we could be playing a little game here, and I could be handing out prizes to the person first spotting the freed Israeli sphinxes hidden away here in this sheet of caricatures. Now, this might take a while, so let me give you the solutions right here. So here we've got the freed Israeli sphinxes, and what we also have is depictions of Disraeli as a curiously shape-shifting, highly theatrical performer who's constantly switching his shapes and his guises and his costumes. And quite some interesting work has been done on representations of Disraeli in Victorian visual culture and a Victorian cartoon, uh, showing him as this sort of effeminate Uh, uh, imposter who's sort of trying to beguile the British public by very skillfully disguising his foreignness and his otherness Uh, so this is not the topic of my paper but I would argue that the elusiveness and the mercurial quality of the Israelis public image um, is to a large part connected to the phenomenon that we're discussing today as part of this conference and this is the migration between different social fields and media um, and certainly in Disraeli's case, this very much challenged existing norms of categorization, and I would think it crucially contributed to his celebrity status. Now, his contemporaries certainly were intrigued by the ways in which Disraeli treated his twin passions for literature and politics as equally viable routes towards gaining public acclaim and prominence. But some of them actually identified it as the key to his success, this kind of reciprocally formative influence of the best-selling novelist and uh, the high profile politicians. So, for example, when Disraeli became prime minister for the first time in 1868, for a very brief period of time, um, this uh, that the fact that a member of the writing professions actually made it to the top of the greasy pole, as the famous Israeli phrase goes, was enthusiastically greeted by an anonymous commentator in London society who attributed his spectacular rise to the fact that, and here I quote, He unites qualities which are not only diverse, but which at first sight appear contradictory and irreconcilable. Flighty, fanciful, loving to soar on the wings of a vague and extravagant imagination, he's at the same time unconquerable by toil, inflexible in resolution, indomitable in perseverance. To the chariot of his mind are yoked Pegasus and the cart horse, and so skilful has been his driving that though he always let Pegasus have his fling, he has never been thrown out of his track and has reached a loftiest goal towards which a British subject can strive. Now, the Israeli's life and career very much reflects the close intersections of literature and politics, and together with the celebifying ramifications of his social, his ethnic, and his intellectual otherness. Um they became mutually sustaining factors in the shaping of his public reputation. Um, but the symbiotic alliance of the creative artists and a pragmatic politician was more than just a cynical uh, publicity stunt and I would argue it certainly became one of the central projects of his life summed up perhaps most strikingly in one of the most frequently quoted lines from his mutilated diary as it is known among the Israeli scholars which he begun in 1833 and where the 29 year old Israeli writes I am only truly great in action If ever I am placed in a truly eminent position, I shall prove this. Poetry is the safety valve of my passions, but I wish to act what I write. My works are the embodification of my feelings. And it's quite striking when you actually get to see the original manuscript, how this really emphasises the verbs act and write in his own handwriting here. Um, Twenty years later in 1853, following Disraeli's first spell in office as Chancellor of the Exchequer with the Conservatives being back on the opposition benches and also with Disraeli being out of office again with time freed up for literary pursuits uh, potentially, he writes a letter to his friend and confidant Sarah Bridges Williams which actually reveals the whole range of conflicting emotions. Um, emerging from this attempt at aligning those two lives of art and action so here he writes and I quote again books and writing fill up the tranquil hours occasionally disturbed by a letter from some statesman out of office raising the spectre of unsatisfied ambition if it were not for the point of honour I would have drew politics having had my dream though not altogether a very brilliant one now, recent Israeli scholarship has shown how, for Disraeli, literature and politics represented closely interconnected media of self-fashioning, of self-invention, self-projection even, through which he tried to come to terms with this lifelong tension between art and action and the visionary and the expedient. Um, but in many ways, I mean, both his literary work and also his political work served him as a workshop of the self as the historian Charles Richmond calls it for which uh, he also tried to develop, articulate, and negotiate his public and private identities uh, throughout his lifetime, I would say. Um, So, for example, Robert O'Kell, in his recent very comprehensive literary biography of the Israeli, which is also programmatically entitled The Romance of Politics, acknowledges this intimate relationship between the literary and the political as, as he says, enactments of the same urgencies and purposes uh, stressing how he treated the politics as a form of fiction and theatrical self display, and also how, on the other hand, he treated the fiction as an expression of the politics. And this is actually a line of argument that is not entirely new and that actually goes back to the Israelis' own day. And we find probably the most perceptive analysis of these very amb- ambivalent migrations of the Israelis in um, an assessment by Leslie Stephen in his 1874 discussion of Mr Disraeli's novels in the fortnightly review, which he ends by posing quite a loaded question, which, if you look at the biographical assessments of Disraeli at the time, and also obituaries appearing after his death in 1881, goes quite against the grain of established, critical and popular opinion. So, the rhetorical question that he poses is may one not lament the degradation of a promising novelist into a prime minister. And what he's actually suggesting is that Disraelis' uh, creative skills and faculties suffered from the cares and the demands of political office. Well, on the other hand, the uh, ambiguity of uh, the creative writer and the social satirist was out of place in political office. So in other words, his double life stopped him from achieving mastery in either field. Um, And so then, as he says, to kind of uh, solve the problem or the dilemma, he develops what he calls a theory of a double consciousness, which uh, requires readers of Disraeli, as he says, to pray with the mystic and sneer with the politician as the fit takes us. So when Stephen then observes that Mr. Disraeli keeps most dexterously in the region of the ambiguous, he points his finger on something that both reflects and stems from Disraeli's lifelong negotiation of his double act. So his personal papers, and particularly his notebooks and diaries, are striking documents that reveal a kind of self-affirming identity construction. Um, which is very much rooted in his awareness of his otherness, his outsiderdom, and also um, the kind of potential consequences of his marginalisation. Now, in line with uh, what Karl Pletsch calls the autobiographical life, and what he means is the life lived in anticipation of one's biographers, what we see here is an almost obsessive, Um, need to romanticise his outsiderdom and to reinvent himself as a chosen prophet hero and visionary by placing himself in a tradition of boundary-breaking geniuses and transgressive Byronic heroes. So I mean, all of them very much identity-shaping models that need to be emulated before they can eventually be overcome. So, for example, the Israeli's really 1842 commonplace book uh, is very interesting because um, it basically represents a chronicle of compulsory name-dropping with historical figures and contemporaries sort of weirdly jumbled together in uh, lists. And uh, these lists have sometimes very interesting titles. So he categorises people and it allows for striking psychological insights. So one of these categories is called spirit of the times. And it is defined by the Israeli as such, to know it, the spirit of the times, and oneself is the secret of success. And it comprises an interesting list of people, um, among them, for example, Alexander the Great, uh, Julius Caesar, Socrates, Jesus Christ, um, <laughs> Byron, Shakespeare, uh, Pope Julius II, and uh, as you see, I mean, the list goes on here. Uh, other categories are interesting as well. One of them is called heroes, impotent or averse to women. Then we got dandies. Uh, a particularly precise one is women. Um, <laughs> <laughs> as I say, I mean, it would make a very interesting psychological study. Uh, female adventurers, parvenus, or then he's also got the literary-political category, where he lists uh, fellow author-cum-politicians as hophouse Macaulay, or his friend Edward Bulwer-Lytton. So whatever complex set of psychological motives inspired the Israelis' literary political border crossings, um, contemporaries often conceived of the Israelis' career as a natural and a very teleological progression from assiduous social climber and fashionable silver fork novelist to distinguished statesman. Uh, it was generally felt that his literary <coughs> works served him as a kind of stepping stone towards attaining distinction and towards attaining a higher, uh, a nobler version of fame in the arena of politics. And his return to novel writing in the wake of his first and second terms in office as prime minister um, puzzled his contemporary audiences, to say the least. Uh, critical responses to his late novels, Lothair, published in 1870, and Endymion, published ten years later, suggests that literary production with its faint whiff of flippancy and uh, uh, frivolousness sat uneasily with the gravitas and the dignity of high political office and statesmanship and it also may well have raised this vaguely uncomfortable specter of uh, the sort of uh, effeminate, uh, byronic, dandy-like Disraeli and this moment is brilliantly captured in Daniel McLeese's uh, sketch for Fraser's magazine in May 1833 the Byronic Disraeli uh, with all the appropriate Byronic accessories, the Turkish pipe, the Turkish slippers, and uh, sort of languidly propped against the mantelpiece, which is cluttered by social invitations. Um, so, uh, uh, this is something that his contemporaries, so or certainly in the later stages when Disraeli became this uh, distinguished prime minister, might not have been comfortable with, but it also shows us that celebrities do come um, with uh, a whole set of meanings constructed through the genres with which they become associated in uh, the field of cultural production and consumption. And uh, this is also very interestingly argued in a, a new book by Nahuel uh, Ripke, which is called "A Genre Approach to Celebrity Politics," where it discusses the mechanisms behind celebrities in different fields. Moving into politics. Um, At the same time, of course, his literary works, and especially those later novels, were uh, uh, considered extraordinary literary coups for which he received enormous advance payments which also triggered quite a considerable amount of advanced publicity and speculation. Um, they triggered parodies and, uh, at best, a set of mixed reviews. But uh, because of that, or well, maybe in spite of that, they, rece- they reached immediately soaring sales figures and they certainly resonated within Victorian popular culture. Now it is Disraeli's personal papers uh, in the Bodleian Library which very much uh, give us an idea and give us a kind of you know, intriguing glimpse of the very personal and intimate responses by ordinary members of the public to Disraeli as a writer and what that means and also the international dimension of these reactions. So for example carefully preserved letters from correspondents all over Um, the world basically, so from the United States, continental Europe, all over the UK, um, illuminate the complex interrelations between celebrity authorship, politics, the literary marketplace and also 19th century fan culture. Now much has been made of the role and the impact of social media um, in sort of facilitating a direct, a personal um, engagement and interaction between celebrities and uh, their audiences. But even though, of course, the scale and the media channels involved are new, the desire and the actual attempt to... Communicate to engage with celebrities uh, directly, personally. So, in a in a social rather than a parasocial interaction, is not, and Israeli really appears to have been deluged by. People writing to him by members of the public and it's interesting those little annotations that he makes on the margins and also on the backs on the envelopes of the letters suggest that even though in the later stages of his career he was aided by personal secretaries in those correspondences he did make an effort to correspond with people himself uh, uh, very personally and um, certainly possible to see proof of that um, So people would write to him with all the usual requests for autographs, for photographic images, for example. I mean, it's kind of very precious, collectible items as an extension of the author's physical presence, uh, forging some kind of, you know, imagined intimacy between author and audience. Uh, Some letters are interesting because they also contain long lists of errors and suggested improvements, which you get all kinds of heartwarming stories from people writing to this asking him to send them a copy of the book because they can't afford it or they want to give it as a birthday present to their sweethearts so all of these things you get Um, I think what we need to be aware of here also is that uh, the Israelis rise to high political office coincided with the growth of political celebrity culture as the consequence of uh, the gradual expansion of the electorate that led to a personalization of party politics and strengthened effective bonds between politicians and the general public. Uh, it is not surprising, therefore, that his rise to high political office further raised his public profile and also fueled interest in his writings, which seem to hold this kind of promise of, of autobiographical revelation of throwing a spotlight on the uh, um, kind of intimate and authentic self of the eminent public figure. So this is again something that you find in his writings. So for example, a certain... Evelyn Chambers writes to Disraeli about the impression that Lothair has made on her saying having known you for many years as a great parliamentary leader and never for one moment having suspected that you had a warm and genial nature or anything so commonplace as a benevolent contentment in your fellow creatures, I am much struck by the evident traces in Lothair of these very unparliamentary and homely qualities. Or similarly, someone called R.H. Patterson compliments Disraeli on the splendid form literature can assume in the hands of a thinker and an artist. It shows also what a distance separates you from all your political peers and how immeasurably higher you are than any of them in the royal gift of genius and intellect. Now, I think we must make allowances for the fact that many of these personal correspondences, and this also counts, of course, for critical reviews of these novels, are coloured by quite some perceptible political and ideological bias. And uh, we must also be aware that uh, there was a much greater fluidity and porousness between uh, the categories of writer, scholar, and politician in the 19th century. Uh, but of course, Disraeli really remains unique in the sense that to this date he remains the only British Prime Minister who started off and, to the intense confusion of his contemporaries, also ended his career as a best-selling novelist. And I think it seems fair to argue that the context-specific manifestations of his literary and his political fame became uh, mutually sustaining and eventually fed off each other during his lifetime and beyond. Um, Now, the ways in which Israeli's persona of literary celebrity and celebrity politician intersected and also were perceived in an international context... Is revealed quite strikingly by a remarkable set of letters that I came across written to Disraeli between the autumn of 1880 and uh, February 1881, so immediately preceding and following the publication of his last finished novel, Endymion, by a woman from Vienna, of all places. Um, so, again, what we need to be aware of is that at that point, Disraeli was, of course, a renowned and internationally renowned statesman. Uh, who had returned from the Congress of Berlin in triumph. These images here taken from the Illustrated London News, giving us an an impression of the sort of enthusiastic reception that he and his Foreign Secretary, Lord Salisbury, were given when returning from Berlin at a Charing Cross station. So it was apparently the crowds turning up there, greeting. So very much also the the, the sort of origins of this uh, peace with honour myth that he created. And again, this sort of um, high public profile in the political arena influenced the reception of his works, fueled interest in his writings. And um, so, for example, Tauchnitz for the Continental Market published an English language edition of his writings as part of his. Um, collection of British author series. Uh, The novels were translated very quickly in all kinds of European languages. Um, They were discussed and reviewed widely in the continental newspapers. There's a whole box among the Israeli papers, I mean, with news cuttings, with reviews, either collected by himself or his private secretaries, uh, or sent to him by people from uh, other European countries. Um, And the letters that I was talking about by this woman from Vienna are striking, not only because of what they tell us about the transfer and the circulation of literary reputations, but also because of what they tell us about 19th century fan culture or fandom in general. Now, the articulation of fandom very much has uh, an identity-building function, but it will always have also um, a gendered and an educational and a class dimension. And so the letters that I'm talking about are from a woman from Vienna called Bettina Wirt. Now, this is her, and this is the photograph that she included in one of her letters to the Israeli And uh, the letters are in impeccable English and she's a very interesting character and I need to do more research on her in the Vienna archives because she was a writer herself, she was uh, a journalist, she was the Vienna correspondent of the London Daily News, she was also a translator, for example she translated a collection of Bret Hart's short stories. And uh, she generally seems to have been a very well-connected member of the Viennese literary and intellectual elites at the time. And the letters are fascinating documents of what I would describe as fan identification, I mean, reflecting the sense of an intimate understanding of and a very privileged access to the workings of uh, the genius author's mind gained through an intimate understanding or a kind of imagined emotional connection between the reader and the famous author-politician. And as you can see, each one is adorned by beautifully handmade ink drawings, usually representing some kind of cliched Austrian pastoral scene, which in many cases underscores the A tone of familiarity that is established very easily and very early on actually so for example in her first letter and this is before she realises that there is a new disraeli novel on the way um, she says England may have gained a great deal by your saying vale to romance but the world's literature has lost quite as much I shall ever be one of your sincerest admirers and should consider making friends with you as almost the highest advantage life could grant. Now, we only have one side of the correspondence, uh, but I have been able to unearth Disraeli's uh, response to this initial letter in the Austrian National Library. Uh, it's a very, nice, it's a, very hand, a very nicely handwritten note, um, and uh, what it also contains, this collection, is his photograph, that he must have sent her at a later stage. Um, But so in this initial response, he says, you have made friends with me by your simple and graceful note, and I appreciate the sympathy of a mind which I'm sure is intelligent and refined. Now, he tells her that he cannot enter into a correspondence because of all the various demands made on his time and whatever, Uh, but he encourages her, and here I quote again, to stay in touch and to convey to me your literary tastes and impressions. Now, of course, with that kind of encouragement, the correspondence flourishes, uh, at least on her side, and it continues. And it becomes obvious that it is a vessel for projecting Bettina Viet's ideals, her beliefs, her values. It becomes an extension of the self that results in an illusion of resemblance and the activity of imitation. So, appealing to their joint... Um, intellectual uh, bond between, and she calls herself the obscure woman and him, the famous man, Witt reveals herself to be a fellow writer who, uh, through her profound and holistic understanding of the Israeli's works and also his personality as uh, an author, considers herself to be in an ideal position to translate his new novel into German. So this is the letter, which uh, is quite interesting here. Uh, It seems to be adorned with her self-portrait. And this is where she asks uh, Disraeli uh, whether she can sort of translate his novel into German. And this letter is also interesting because it also is the one where she includes her own photograph and where she asks Disraeli to send him his in return. So this letter kind of you know sheds an intriguing light on the whole spectrum of facets that characterise fan celebrity relationships. So on the one hand you have this wish, this desire to translate an abstract sense of a kind of imagined connection into something tangible, into some tangible materiality. Uh, what you also have is this wish for a kind of transfer of cultural capital and prestige, which Bettina Wiedt would have gained, had Disraeli allowed her to translate his novel into, into German. And, of course, what you also have is an attempted break with existing socio-cultural norms and power structures and gender hegemonies, Um, because the correspondence with Israeli also then becomes a kind of um, um, vessel in the form of emancipation and empowerment and also female authorial self-assertion. So it becomes a channel of escapism that allows her to align the intrinsically gendered public and private spheres. Um, And they are very ambivalent, those letters. So she stresses her femininity and her domesticity, her role as mother, as wife. And at the same time, of course, she stresses her credentials as... A writer, as a a translator, as someone who reports from the Vienna cultural scene to international newspapers. But it also becomes uh, a sort of uh, vessel for projecting a romantic ideal. And her last letter is fascinating because the last letter. Um, is one, and you can see it's kind of adorned by this uh, Austrian couple in traditional dress, romantically entwined, because it is a response to the Israeli sending her his uh, photograph. And as luck would have it, this letter arrives on uh, the 14th of February. So she writes back and she immediately addresses him, saying, You are my Valentine. Yeah? Uh, But then she switches again to this kind of imagined uh, intellectual bond between them, and she refers to his uh, latest work Endymion. And she says, "Um, I wish no one but myself had read Endymion. It seems to me as though you had confessed the inmost thoughts of your soul by revealing a part of the intimate life of those near and dear to you. And I'm sorry all the world should know it. Now, in fact, to round off here, what Bettina Witt's words here echo is um, the way in which the Israeli's twin public persona of novelist and politician justified the actually still ongoing practice of treating his literary works as fictionalized autobiographies, illuminating the inner life of an eminent public figure, um, and it's also an interesting case study that shows that the Israeli's fame, both at home and internationally, very much relied on this inextricable. Um, mingling of his parallel lives, and also the context of institutional power, tradition, and literary celebrity culture in which they were enmeshed. Um, it was very much shaped. It was fed by uh, contemporary audiences, um, who very much responded to the Israelis project of trying to align the lives of political action, of visionary leadership, of creative achievement. Um, and of course these projects were positioned on a continuum uh, between the two extreme poles of pragmatic calculation and idealist vocation. In any case, very much of an um, ambivalent performance of the self.